Welcome to the very first special guest Saturday here on SBKN, the Sport Professional Knowledge Network. Today, Meg and Dr. G sit down with renowned sports sociologist Dr. Jay Coakley, Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Author of Sports and Society, Issues and Controversies, which is thought to be the most widely used textbook in the world, Dr. Coakley shares some insight on the top social issues in sport and how they will be changing the sport industry and the American culture as a whole in the near future. So much more than just another new sports podcast, SPKN is sport knowledge. Hey, Meg and Dr. G here with SPKN, the Sport Professional Knowledge Network, and today we have with us Dr. Jay Coakley. Jay has spent more than 45 years studying sports and culture. His textbook, Sports and Society, Issues and Controversies, is in its 13th edition and has been translated into multiple languages, including Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and even Croatian. As an international respected scholar, author, and journal editor, Jay has received many awards on his journey to make sports participation a source of enjoyment and development for young people around the world. Jay, we are delighted to have you join us today. Welcome to SPKN. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming, Jay. I, I, I think as a new show too, having somebody with your reputation and for those looking to understand sport better, uh, your sport and society textbook for right all the listeners you know it, it's monumental i mean you know the history of sociology of sport and you published the first uh edition what in 1970 78 yeah yeah i mean so at that time too there weren't very many other textbooks there was you know you and and you know george sage and stanley eitzen were starting really the sociology of sport and producing those things and harry edwards in fact three Sociology of Sport textbooks came out in 1978 simultaneously. What was happening in the 70s then that everybody was writing those books? I think that that commercialization was having major major impact on how sports were organized, how people defined sports, how young people saw their future in sports, and people started asking some critical questions about how sports were organized, where they were going, what they should be like in the future, and that excited people with backgrounds in sociology to uh, to start looking at sport with a critical eye. Yeah, they might not know, when, what do you mean by critical eye? Asking questions about sport related to who, who, who plays, under what conditions, who's excluded, whose games get to count within society in terms of how they're funded, supported, and promoted and turned into official activities, for example, in school systems and and in university athletic programs. And also, uh, who has the power to make those decisions? And what are the power dynamics that, that are associated with sports and society? Well, basically, a sports sociologist studies the connections between sports and the culture and society within which sports exist. And they also focus on the social worlds that are created in and around sports. So basically, we're concerned with how society and culture influence how sport is organized and who gets to play, who doesn't, who's excluded, how sports are promoted, uh, how they're covered in the media 
And we also look at the links between a sport and gender, gender relations in society, race and ethnic relations, uh, socioeconomic class, and age and ability issues, who gets access to sport under what conditions. And then when we look at sport itself, we're concerned with issues related to deviance and violence and labor issues. So we look at the whole connection between sports and the economy and politics and education and the media. So it's a pretty inclusive field. Yeah. Those things sound like things that have changed quite a bit over the last 45 years as you've been that you've been studying this. Yeah, it's, you know, when, when sports were first organized in the late 19th and early 20th century, they, they basically had a reality that was confined to the locality within which they exist. But since that time, sports have become increasingly institutionalized. And that's a sociological term that basically means that they've become more formalized, the rules have become more standardized, the game looks the same in various places where it's played. So sports have have basically become more organized over the past century and a half, and now we're starting to critique that organization. Has that happened more in the U.S. than in other countries? Has it, thinking about soccer, you know, you, you go to a lot of Latin American countries and they still have, you know, the pickup game and the, everyone has a soccer ball and they're just out having fun with soccer and yet... In the U.S., my experience, my daughter plays soccer, and she's constantly, you know, having to have a field, have a, you know, have a team together. Are you on club? Are you on, you know, AYSO? It, it just seems like the organization has kind of taken it over. Yeah, that's that's happened over the past 40 years, and basically in the United States, we've seen what some people refer to as the death of the culture of childhood play. And along with that, there has been far fewer informal games played by young people. And when you look over the past two generations, we've seen major changes in the way kids grow up. In in the past, for example, in, in my generation, for every hour that I spent in an organized sport program, I probably spent 15 to 20 hours playing informal games. Mm-hmm. And my granddaughters now, for every hour that they spend in an informal game, they're spending 15 to 20 hours in organized sports. So we've seen a major shift and and it's related to, in many ways, the commercialization of sport and the fact that we use these commercial models of sports, and we have a word for that in sociology, pro-Olympic sports. And in other words, it's a model based on professional and elite amateur sports. And those, those sports are now used as the standard against which all sport forms are measured and evaluated. I always thought that safety kind of played into it. Uh, as I was growing up, there was a, a shift from just letting your kids run around and, and um, do whatever to kind of like, we need to keep an eye on you. There's, there's bad people out there. Yeah, and I think that awareness of of the dangers in the world has increased with the way news has oh. been covered. Uh, so when I when when I was growing up and my kids were growing up, the first five stories on the local news were not about murders and abductions and child kidnapping and other kinds of issues like that. And interestingly, the world has gotten increasingly safer for young kids over the past. 40 to 50 years, but 
the sense that it's danger dangerous for kids has increased tremendously after the over the past 40 to 50 years. Yep. I think I think that's one of the most interesting things that a historical sociological lens can offer people is to look at those weird contradictions in that you're right more people are actually safe today there's less relatively less wars you know we're, you're not shipping people off to Vietnam or Korea or something like that back in the 60s and 70s so kids are safer today but yet we are afraid to let them go play at the park or go down the street or play pickup you know on their own but we're also calling them snowflakes and you have to wrap them in bubble wrap right you know and we have to when they when they scrape their knee you have to immediately rush over and take care of them and they can't do those things anymore and now we have to you know watch over them and regulate it. i mean that's a you know different context but all within the kind of a sport or physical activity and you know child movement studies that those things don't make sense together in, right. in a, in a and, safety and lens. there's been some cultural changes that that also have influenced that change and and one of them is that as we've emphasized individual responsibility to a greater extent in our social and political world rather than government control over family life or over what what children do what we've seen is that parents and parental moral worth now is tied to what happens to their children so parents today are held responsible for the whereabouts and the behavior of their children 24-7, 365 days a year. And that is the first time in human history that parents have ever been held to that expectation. And it's driving parents crazy, and it's driving kids crazy, too. I can attest to that. It is driving us crazy. And I can sh I'm sure my kids will agree. Yeah. It's driving them crazy, too. <laughs> so children are kept on a much shorter leash today by their parents than kids in the last number of generations. And parents are super sensitive to this. So what they do is they try to find adult-organized and adult-supervised programs for their kids so that when they get out of school, they go to their youth sport practice or their dance lessons, or their music lessons, or their acting lessons, where adults are in charge. And, you know, parents feel that, that if they let their kids run around, go to the local park, that they're going to be in danger, or that their kids are going to get into trouble. And if their kids get into trouble, who gets blamed? The parents. So now, if a parent just lets their 10 and 12-year-old walk together to the park, somebody's going to call social services or the police. And, you know, it's gotten so bad in some communities that parents have gotten together and formed what they call free-range children clubs, where they actually get together and, and kids will support each other, but they actually allow their children to explore a little bit of the world on their own rather than being on this leash 24 hours a day. Yeah. I remember being so excited that I lived on a cul-de-sac. And I was so excited when my kids were able, and, and all the kids along the street went to the same school mm -hmm. and the school was down the street they could walk to school so I thought this was fantastic you know they could actually have something similar to the way I grew up where they could just go out ride their bike or go to their next door neighbor I know you have kind of a similar situation with your kids that and it's it seems very odd you almost have to think twice about it it's like is this safe because this is not normal where it, it should be much more normal. I remember the joy I felt, you know, having my kids go, I'm going to Johnny's house, and, and them being able to have that kind of 
independence. Right. And and with that independence came the ability to be, to be creative, to make up things that you wouldn't make up uh, with adults around supervising you. And when when you do that, you take ownership of your own activities and you get more joy out of them. And, and that really ties to what's happened with youth sports uh, because youth sports used to be neighborhood-based. Kids used to be able to ride their bikes. They didn't need parents to drive them to and from practices and games. So now what's happened is that instead of communities sponsoring sports through park and recreation departments, what we have is parents and families are sponsoring sports. And that has had a major impact on how kids see their own sport participation. They see it as tied to their family rather than tied to their own community and neighborhood. And that has implications for how they grow up, how they see their connection to their own community and neighborhood. Those connections have become less obvious to young people than they were in the past. And I think that's impacted the extent to which we participate in our communities. Yeah, does, it, does, does, that, does any of that really matter to you? Let's answer that question, right? Does that, at a practical level, that's a great observation, you know, right? But does that really matter or make a difference? You know, today's age, okay, you know, kids are playing less, but they've got more structure and we've got more opportunities for them, you know, uh, Things are better nowadays, too. You know, what's your, what do you say yeah. to something like that? Well, maybe we don't have as many opportunities. And, you know, that's one of the things that's happened along with some of these changes is that a lot of our youth sport programs have become more segregated by social class because we have moved from a low-cost and free publicly funded programs that existed from the 1950s all the way through the 1970s and much of the 80s. And now we've moved to a pay-to-play private youth sports system that's much more exclusive and your participation depends on your ability to pay. So what's happened is that kids from upper middle class and wealthier families have great access to youth sport participation opportunities, whereas kids in lower income groups don't. And what that has done is not only cut access for a good percentage of the young population, but it's also limited the pool of talent from which we can draw as kids get older and are trying out for high school and college and Olympic teams and professional teams. So what we're seeing is that that the upper income kids are much more privileged in that process now and that lower income kids unless they have access to public school programs where they get some good coaching Which and there are fewer and fewer yeah the, then you know we're ending up with college programs being predominantly white and upper middle class except for the revenue generating programs like football and men's basketball, women's basketball, and maybe a couple of others, ice hockey in, in some places. But, but all of the other sports uh, are drawing from this pool of kids from upper income families. And the irony of it is that the revenues generated by those kids from the lower income families are actually funding the scholarships that, that the kids from upper income families have. So it's kind of this reverse welfare that we've got going on in sport programs right now. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more to make it clear that connection of how, let's say, football or men's basketball at the collegiate level is helping fund then the predominantly whiter sports of golf, 
tennis, lacrosse, swimming? Like, wh- what do you mean by that? Like, how does that actually work? Well, it works in a real clear-cut way in the Power Five conferences in the United States, where the big football and basketball media contracts that, that the schools and the conferences have are providing literally billions of dollars to those universities, and a good part of those billions of dollars are going to fund other sports within the athletic department. And so what you have are football and basketball players, uh, men's players predominantly, half of whom are African-American right now, are, are generating the revenues uh, that provide support for most of the other sport programs within the university. Now, that, that model doesn't apply to all programs because a lot of football and basketball programs don't make money but but that's that's the way things are at least in the top 65 to 75 schools in the universities in the country right now has yeah. that changed much I, mean, I kind of always have thought that was the case yeah well it's changed dramatically over the past six or seven years with the big media contracts and, you know, college football and college basketball are major spectator events. They draw a lot of eyeballs. They also draw a lot of donors and boosters and, and alumni and, and others to focus their attention on their universities. And, you know, over a, a number of years, you know, it's a $2 billion contract. So, for example, uh, the schools in the Big Ten are getting $52 million a year just from their TV contracts. Now, about 20 to 30 million of that is spent by the football and basketball programs, but the other 20 to 30 million are going to fund Mm -hmm. the programs that are predominantly white with kids from predominantly upper-income families. How do you know that? What's your your evidentiary claim? Where's your evidence for that claim? Yeah, (laughs) Well, you know, you can you can look at a lot of you can look at a lot of pictures in in the uh, uh, turn on the TV, would you? In the well, room, I gotta ask. I gotta ask the evidence side. I yes, gotta be scholars. Yeah. We don't yeah. just make things up, and people right. are listening too, and they're gonna go, well, you know, that's just his opinion, or you know, well, I don't I don't see that either. So there's evidence, and I know there's evidence too. So what right. is that evidence? Yeah, the evidence is that we certainly know because of the data gathered by by universities what racial and ethnic group people come from. And we also have information on the socioeconomic status of their families. And we know that the football and basketball players are coming from families generally that are have lower incomes than divers and golfers and swimmers and lacrosse players and, and others. Mm-hmm. Continue on that kind of thread and bring in the work of C. Wright Mills and the sociological imagination, and as well as defining personal troubles versus social issues is one of the key kind of work that people cite from Mills's work. And it sounds like you feel that this is a key social issue. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about why this is an issue, right? Like, why don't we just have the free market do its thing? And it's already working effectively. You know, it's the spectators, like you said, are out there watching sports. They're the ones paying for all this stuff. They get what they want. You know, if you're going to interfere with it or if you've got a problem with it, that's your personal problem. It's not really something that warrants a social issue or uh, government regulation or something like that. 
Right, yeah. And in the United States, there is a tendency to see those kinds of problems as personal problems rather than as social issues. So if somebody doesn't have access to participation, then what we need to do is we need a pro athlete develop a little program where they they create sport programs in, in a local community and give some of those kids opportunities. But that's just focusing in on personal problems. And, and that's not bad. Uh, that's good, but it's not solving the social issue that we have across this country where young people from lower income families and living in certain areas of, of large cities especially, and in rural areas too, where systemically they just don't have access to the same kinds of opportunities as kids in upper middle class areas. And you can see that just when you talk with kids and you watch who, who's participating in, in most of these pay-to-play programs. There are people who are driving around $60,000 SUVs. There are people who can take off time from work because they have the kinds of jobs that give, us, give them certain kinds of discretionary time. They're not working by the hour where if they leave, they have to punch out and they have to have a note from their doctor in order to go take their kids from the, to a practice. So we're talking about transportation issues. We're talking about ability to pay fees. We're talking about access to the kinds of equipment that you need in order to participate at the elite kinds of levels that exist in these pay-to-play programs. So what is the answer then? How mm-hmm. do we make that, that change? Well, that is a, it's becoming a, defined as a social issue now because obesity rates have, have increased over the past 40 years in, in the United States. So we have a major health problem related to the inactivity of a proportion of our young people in this society. And that inactivity is more likely to exist among lower income kids than, than kids from upper income families. So I've worked for a number of years now, five or six years with Project Play, which was started by Tom Ferry, who used to be an investigative journalist with ESPN and has done great Emmy Award-winning work over the years. But he now works for the Apps with the Aspen Institute on their sport and society topic. And he's developed this program, Project Play, which is, d- is designed to reinvent youth sports so that kids from every zip code have access to participation in youth sport programs. And we're trying to change those youth sport programs to give kids more opportunities to play during practices, to engage in informal games, and to develop a love of sport that will take them through not just youth sports, but into sports through the rest of their lives so that they'll stay healthy. Is is anybody doing it? Are there any exemplar communities, states that are doing youth sports the right way? Yeah, that's one of the things that we're investigating with Project Play. Before Project Play will go into a community, what what they do is they do an inventory of, of what's there in terms of, of participation opportunities for kids. Who has those opportunities? Who doesn't? Where are the parks located? You know, how much does it cost to get into programs? What kinds of public transportation exists so the kids can access various kinds of opportunities? And once the community gets on board and says, you know, we want to make changes here, then what Project Play does is is they 
they try to get a number of stakeholders in that community from various institutional spheres, from the business community, educational community, medical community, and so on. And they try to get them together to, to get on the same page about what we want to do with youth sports, how we want to make them more neighborhood-based, more play-based, more player-centered, and focus more on lifetime participation in physical activities and sports rather than focusing in on a type of programs that are organized like a pyramid where where kids get knocked out at every level rather than staying in. And so we're focused on things like physical literacy for, for kids under the age of 13 because with our specialized sport programs right now, kids are becoming physically illiterate, even some of the ones that are playing sports because they're playing one sport 12 months a year and they're not getting the full physical development experience in connection with that, with that sport participation. So Project Play is saying we ought to focus on physical literacy in the programs for kids under the age of 13. Now, that doesn't mean they can't compete, that they can't play games, but we're talking about playing small-sided games. We're talking about giving them much more opportunities to control how, you know, how a practice goes uh, so that it fits with what they're interested in. And by the way, they're interested in action, personal involvement in that action, controlled challenges so that they're not overwhelmed or underwhelmed mm-hmm. by what's going on, and opportunities to play with their friends. So unless you can do that yeah. in a youth sport program, you're not going to create the kinds of enjoyment that will keep people fi- you know, participating in mm-hmm. physical activities and sports through the rest of their lives. Let me give you an example of something that, that we went through with my daughter. As I mentioned, she plays soccer. So she loves soccer, but she loves, I mean, she's very talented. She, she could play any sport she wanted to, and she loved playing all the sports. But it got to the point where, and it was literally 10, it was probably 8, you know, you ate that she had to do this, but you start, you know, playing AYSO and she played baseball for a year. And literally, if you don't, if they don't go into a club by U10, they won't look at you at all. Like they won't even entertain it. And if you're not in a club sport, the schools won't even look at you. So you as a parent, now there's no way a child could say, oh, I want to be, I mean, of course they would love to be a professional athlete, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, what kid doesn't, but there's no way it, you eight, they can say, I want to specialize in soccer and I want to play in college. But you as a parent have to figure out, you know, do you want that opportunity if she decides to do that mm-hmm. or if she wants to do that. And then they say, if you're on a club team, you can't join an AYSO team because that's it's a different thing and it, the, the kids hog the ball and no one else gets a chance. Mm-hmm. But I think parents get in this situation where if you want to have the opportunity to play a college sport, you literally have to get them into a sport at, at eight years old. That's insane. Yeah, except uh, a lot of the data show that the kids who are getting the scholarships are oftentimes kids who play in multiple sports because they have developed all-around physical skills. And, you know, like Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, is a classic example of that, you know, played multiple sports. And people marvel at his ability to do certain things. You know, if he had stayed in football from age six on and played one position in Mm -hmm. football, he may not have had the, the field of vision and the physical literacy 
in order to spontaneously respond to what he's facing out on the football field now. And coaches know that, college coaches. And, yeah. and I know all the college coaches will say that, yeah. that they, they'd much rather have a kid that, that, that goes around. But when we fill out forms for our kids to go mm-hmm. to school or, you know, have a coach look at you or the NCAA, you know, has regulations for, for filling out these forms, and it's, it literally won't allow you to push the button unless you can put what your club is and what her ranking in that club is. So while they all say that, there has to be a way that they can, I mean, I I understand they they need to be able to narrow the field somehow so that Mm -hmm. they can look at everybody. But I feel like it's this circle where the, the coaches would like to have that opportunity to say, absolutely, we want you to play a lot of sports. And there's, I think there's no question, I'm sure there's research on it, but there's no question that you're better off playing multiple sports injury-wise and and socially. But I think that the system has them kind of stuck. You're right, and it's frustrating parents. You know, we have this pipeline program. Yes, it is. (laughs) We have this pipeline program, and people think that unless you get into this pipeline, you're you're not going to be on the road to... Of being successful later on. And what has happened is, this is one of the contradictions that Brian was talking about. We, we give lip service to multiple sport participation and the fact that, that it's valuable, but this organizational structure that we have is a pipeline structure which precludes that kind of experience unless parents are making a concerted attempt and have the resources, by the way, in order to do that, to get their kids involved in a variety of different sport activities. And and now we've got these training programs like Velocity and some other programs that are not sports specific, that are are basically physical literacy programs for adolescents. And and for kids who, who haven't had even though they've been in, in organized sport and since they're three years old, they haven't had a chance to become fully physically literate. Mm-hmm. And so now you need to spend $80 an hour to make up for all the things that your kids missed out on because they didn't engage in, in spontaneous play and informal games, which are much more diverse in terms of the kinds of movements the kids engage in, the kinds of muscular development and coordination skills that that, that they develop during their childhood. Let's tie it into, earlier you talked about the commercialization, and I I say commodification, you know, the, the kind of capitalistic approach to youth sports. Everything's bureaucratic and organized, and there's a payment, and there's a fee, and you have a coach maybe that gets paid or they have private coaches or private clubs. What's the sort of talk, right, that they use to tell everybody, to tell mom and dad, oh, you need to sign up for this because I'm going to help your kid get a scholarship. You know, trust me, I know what I'm doing, uh, and I'll get them in front of the recruits and the, and the college recruiters. Yeah, I, I won't give you the, the long story to that, but back when park and recreation programs started to fade and there was a vacuum for adult supervised sport programs. And a number of people started to fill that vacuum. Some of them were parents, and generally they were parents from wealthier backgrounds who had the time and the resources Mm -hmm. in order to do this. They were what I call youth sport entrepreneurs, people who often come out of our our sports studies programs and our sport management programs, where they wanted to use youth sport as, as a context for their careers. Right. So they start a soccer program or a football program or basketball program, whatever, but they need to put food on the table 12 months a year. So what they did in the 1980s and 90s was 
came up with this narrative saying that early specialization in, a, in one sport is good. That's the way you're supposed to go. And they did that to keep people in their programs 12 months a year so that they could make a living. Mm -hmm. And a lot of parents don't understand that. They know that playing just one sport is not probably the way their kids mm -hmm. should go but they don't have the time and energy to get them into yeah. other sports, and they don't understand that the system is stacked against them here. Yeah, it worked for Tiger Woods. It worked for Tiger Woods. You know? <laughs> and this is one of these kind of, you know, I'd say a logical fallacy, right, that you find one person like that. Right? You can bring up Patrick Mahomes, but I'll bring up Tiger Woods. Well, Tiger specialized when he was a baby, and so therefore we should all do that too. And clearly it worked for him. Right. And, so, and we don't have... Yeah, sport, yeah, sport wise, yeah, obviously psychosocial emotional development might have been a little bit lacking on that. Maybe, one. And, and we don't hear about those kids mm -hmm. uh, who end up in halfway houses and drug rehab programs and, yeah. and dropping out of sport generally because their parents have controlled their life so much that they can't develop the identities they need in order to enter adulthood in some kind of a confident way. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting point that Brian brings up because, and I'm going to tell you a quick story here. When, when I was 11 years old, I was playing on a Little League team that happened to be pretty good, and we were two games away from going to Williamsport. And my parents had been to one Little League game the entire year, and they came to this last game that we lost. And while I was playing, a number of people came up to my parents and said, you're really lucky to have Jay as a, as a kid. And they said, yeah, we, we think so. And, and then when my son and daughter were playing doubles tennis and went down to Albuquerque to play in the finals for the regionals to go to Forest Hills in, as amateurs, they drove our van down there. Nancy and I couldn't go, so they went on their own as a 17 and 16-year-old. And people came up to Nancy and, and me when they were playing tennis, and they'd say, you must be really proud of Dennis and Danielle. We'd say, yeah, we're really proud of Dennis and Danielle. Then in 1997, Tiger Woods wins the Masters. And what did people do? They went to Earl Woods and they said, how did you create a tiger? So we went in two generations from parents being lucky to being proud to being creators. Now, this is tied to a whole set of social and cultural things that are going on in society. Earl Woods made more money selling his book on mm -hmm. training a tiger than Tiger Woods did winning the Masters. So when uh, Richard Williams was sitting in the stands and Venus and, and Serena oh, were yeah. winning tournaments, people didn't go to Venus and Serena and say, why do you love tennis so much? You know, what got you into it? They went right to Richard Williams and they said, how did you create these two prodigies? Yeah. And Richard Williams was the first person inducted into the USTA Hall of Fame oh, really? yeah. because he epitomized what USTA thought parents were at that particular time, the creators of prodigies. Wow. Yeah. And that has put a lot of pressure on parents. So parents have become agents, they've become advocates, and they feel it's their moral duty to get in the face yeah. of any coach or any referee who interferes with their child's progress in this pipeline. It's unbelievable. And so now we have parent problems that are major problems for coaches mm -hmm. in our youth sport programs and our high school and college programs now. So, in fact, one of the things as the NBA players are playing in this bubble uh, that we're living in right now in, in uh, 2020, one of the problems is that parents are having a hard time getting to the games of their professional athlete 
sons and daughters. And because there's a limit to the number of people who can go into the bubble. And they're, they're going bonkers because they have been the creators of these kids and they want to see how their creations are doing. Yeah. I mean, how, how did you keep things in perspective? How do you, with all of the, because sociology, I, I describe, it's not exactly like a very uplifting field sometimes. They look at a lot of critical things, right? They look at a lot of problems and inequalities and isms. No, your knowledge of sociology is sport, you've got children, grandchildren. How do you kind of check yourself and not become the creator and not push into that direction? Yeah, I, I, I guess my case for sociology would be the exact opposite. Because if you know about the social forces that are influencing people, including yourself, and if you know how those social forces operate, then you can make some different choices than you would ordinarily make. So as you become aware of all of these things that are influential, it can be freeing mm -hmm. because you start to figure out ways that you can avoid that influence and hopefully try to put your children on, on or into situations where they're going to have opportunities to be creative, to be spontaneous, to develop a love, claim ownership of the activities in which they're involved so that they stay involved in those activities through their, through their lifetimes. And, and you can start playing with them when they, when they get to, uh, well, shoot, I've, I've played with my grandkids, you know, when they were five years old. And, and I still play with them, go skiing with them, play tennis with them. And it's great. We don't compete. We see how many times we can hit the ball across the net until they just really love getting to 100 and skiing down the hill and making it over this mogul or not. And I'm playing right along with them. So, I mean, one of the things you've said a couple of times now, too, is... And there you use the word play, not sport. Mm -hmm. not, and and maybe we, might, we might go further with like competitive sport is sometimes how we refer to it, to refer to that competition or orientation. Do you want to talk about the difference or kind of contrasting games, sport, play? Because you can be doing skiing or tennis, like you said, and it can be a game, it can be play, it can be sport, but it's still skiing. Right. I think that's right. a tricky thing for people to kind of juggle through and, and analyze. Yeah, yeah. I think in, in situations that are not highly structured and, and controlled by a coach, for example, athletes have more opportunities to experience what social psychologists call flow. And what that means is that they have an opportunity to get involved in a physical challenge that meets the challenges their abilities, but doesn't overwhelm them, but they have to focus every second of the time on that ski hill or on that tennis ball and in order, in order to have fun. So we're not talking about just playing around here. We're talking about experiencing on an emotional level a sense of mastery that, that you have control over. And if, if you attribute all of your skill development to a coach that has had complete control over your development over the past five years, it's hard to experience flow in the same way. And I would make a, I would make a guess right now that if you went into that bubble and, and talked to those NBA players, of course they're doing it for their salaries, but they're doing it because they're having fun. And I think that fun trumps external rewards and winning for everybody who stays involved in sports. 
Now, that's not to say that winning isn't important. It's to say that, that when it's all said and done, what do you remember? You know, those trophies on the shelf aren't nearly as important as those emotional memories that you have where you just loved what you were doing. Conversation as a parent, right? Well, did you yeah. win? Did you win? What yeah, was the score? Did you score? Yeah, I never do that, but yeah. You know, as opposed to, did you have fun? I mean, mm-hmm. that was the thing that, you know, that my parents often said to me, too, was, did you have fun? You know, or did you learn anything? Yeah. And reflect about it more like that rather than, you know, did you win or, you know, it, you know, my dad was funny because when he got to, when I got older, he started sending my football tapes to small colleges and, and big ones to try to get me to be a long snapper. He wanted, he wanted me to get <laughs> that's a college. A good, that's a good way to oh go. My, I mean, it's, it's not bad. Yeah, it's not a bad way to go. But I mean, what a, what a I didn't want to do that. You get hit in the head a lot doing that. But oh, do you? Yeah, Uh-oh. Can, yeah. I mean, never mind. Yeah, that's not a good yeah, one. They don't call it. You can jump on a center sometimes. You're supposed to protect him. You know, I've suggested to a lot of these club programs that why have one sport? for 12 months a year. Why not have multiple sport clubs where what you would do is play three to four different sports during the course of a year, have them kinesiologically, you know, complementary in in certain ways, and then you would compete against other teams that were that were other clubs that mm-hmm. were multiple sport clubs as well. And then you'd be developing physical literacy and you would be developing options for those kids as they get older. And then they may decide to specialize at 16 years old, which is which is the age at which they should be maybe starting to think about that choice mm-hmm. of specialization. But until then, to specialize, you're locking kids into a box that, that isn't going to do them any favors developmentally mm-hmm. as a human being. Yes. Or athletically. At, at 13, I was at Nick Baltieri's Tennis Academy, and I played about nine hours a day, mm-hmm. and then I had a tutor for a couple of years, for a couple mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, that's real similar to Simone Biles, who, when she was interviewed uh, during the last Olympics, she pointed out that she had never done a load of wash. Yeah. As a 20-year-old. Yeah. And, you know, she had focused on sport to, to that extent that it really made her developmentally challenged and you know unless she was talking gymnastics she had a hard time she didn't know what button to push on a washing machine in order to get her clothes clean now that's not development from my perspective as a parent or a grandparent I bet you I mean there's people listening though that are thinking well if my child becomes Simone Biles and doesn't know how to use the washing machine that'd be okay yeah, but 99% of those kids, 99.9, don't become Simone Biles. And unless they know how to work that washing machine and do a heck of a lot of other things, they're going to be developmentally challenged as they enter adulthood. And what happens afterwards? Right. You're not, you're not in it. Tennis as an individual sport, I can compete with anyone. But what's outside of that? Right. You know, I mean, what, what types of conversations do you have to make friends? What right. kind of conversation, you know, if you're not talking about tennis? So it's, I think it's socially, it is a, a very different situation. And I was glad that Charlie was doing soccer because it's a team sport. Right. So I thought, oh, you know, that's different. Well, it's not really that yeah. different. It's a little different, but not that you're much. You're still competing and... for spots. Right. So it, and as you get older, it gets much more competitive, but you're not an island like tennis. Right. Yeah. And individual sports are especially problematic here because parents and coaches can isolate kids from their peers and from the rest of life more easily than you can in team sports. Mm -hmm. So those kids in individual sports oftentimes get trapped at an earlier age 
And Chris Everett, I don't know if you remember this quote, she said, I stayed in tennis three years longer than I wanted to because I didn't know anything about the rest of the world. And I was, I was petrified about leaving the tennis court and having to be a regular human being. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And Martina Navratilova said when she retired, I'm going to go back to Paris and see the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower because I've been there 14 times yeah. and I've never seen the Louvre. Yeah. I've only seen the inside of hotel rooms. Now that's, you know, she was yeah. good and uh, we're talking about the exceptions here. 99.9% don't get to be Chris Everett or Martina yeah. Navratilova or any of the other top Yeah. Players. I still feel more comfortable in a hotel room than I do at home though. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's 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 kind of strange. I'm, uh, that sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah, you, I, I, I'm thinking about what a what a lack of an opportunity to travel around the world, and now even in youth sports, at least connected. If if you think of coaching or sport or, or parenting as an educator, what a missed opportunity to go somewhere, right, and see something and make it part of a more well-rounded experience, mm -hmm. right? If you're going to be in, you know, Colorado, go to visit the USOC. If you're going to be in D.C., go visit. Holocaust or, or right. memorials. Mm -hmm. Go visit the sites. Right. You know, and make it a, a cultural, educational experience besides just your sporting experience. Right. There's and, no time and meet you people. have to practice. Yeah, and you know, that's one of the things that I, that I tell coaches is that one of the things you ought to be doing as a coach, because sport can either expand our experiences, relationships, and identities, or they can constrict them. And we've developed a system where they're more likely to be constricted now. And to get away from that, what we ought to be doing as coaches is exactly what you've just said, Brian, is, is working with some people, people from the community, parents of kids on your team, to set up those opportunities. When you go to Washington, D.C., not only go to that museum, but talk to the, the curator of that museum. Talk to somebody who set up one of the displays in the museum. Talk to one of the donors that funded that museum, then you're expanding that individual's experiences and relationships and identities to the point where they're going to feel much more comfortable entering adulthood as an athlete because they have all of this cushion to fall back on, these other identities. If they don't do well, yeah. this is not the end of the world. You know, and, and the coaches now who are doing the 18 to 20 year olds, the under 20s, you know, they're saying dealing with these kids emotionally is really tough because they haven't developed the identities and experiences that they can fall back on so that they're either at the top emotionally or at the bottom because whether they've been successful during practice or a game or had problems and the coaches are saying we we're on an emotional roller coaster with these kids they don't have these identity cushions that that kind of level them out where they can take a loss take a failure and not have it be the end of the world yeah when when children i've noticed too when i coached high school football down in mississippi and coaching youth youth soccer here with six-year-olds the number of children crying after a loss or during the game i find to be remarkable and disturbing that the children have affixed so much meaning to losing at such an early age yeah. that they are crying over that. I think the only time I cried as a child is, you know, a severe physical injury or when my mom died. And that kids are crying during sporting or immediately after a game yeah. seems to be uh, psychologically. Charlie has coaches that are upset if the kids aren't crying, like makes them run extra because they're yeah, not they're emotionally yeah. connected. I mean, that's just as disturbing. You see, you see that as connected as like a conformity? I know you've written about conformity and, and 
over conformity and those sorts of things is that kind of like ca- carrying on that sport ethic and that- yeah yeah kid, well kids get get tied into this notion that they have to be dedicated to the game above all else that they've got to make sacrifices in order to stay in the game that there is nothing that can stop them from pursuing their dreams in sport uh, that they have to maintain through injury and pain and you know that those are you know, I, I want my, I taught my kids those norms, but I also tried to teach them that there's limits to those norms, that you can go overboard, that, that when you have a pain, you know, you've got to learn to distinguish pain from injury and, and know when to stop rather than playing through it all the time. And the same thing goes with your dedication to your sport. If it's going to interfere with other things that are important in your life, maybe you've got to start making some different kinds of choices. So if you get locked into that sport ethic and Conforming to those norms without qualification, you end up engaging in some dangerous behaviors over time. And, and unfortunately, so a lot of coaches extol those behaviors where somebody is, is giving their body to the team, so to speak, despite the fact that they've just blown their ACL. We're seeing 10-year-olds now at rates we've never seen before going into orthopedic surgeries for torn ACLs, meniscus, MCLs. So the, the injuries that kids are having now, and we're getting off the topic a little bit, but, but we're seeing injuries in kids that kids should not be having. Yeah, well, this is why sociologists of sports uh, don't have elite level athletes. We're too critical about everything. <laughs> I'll make a joke, and now we'll re- revisit a different topic. What, what needs to happen, what do you think, for coaching education to avoid the specialized approach that coaches take what how, how do we actually go about reforming that because I'd say I, I don't know I don't know if I'm optimistic about it you know what needs to happen yeah there's different things that you can do during practices and and this requires that you meet with parents ahead of time give them your philosophy on what you're doing during the course of the season but if you're working with say 10 year olds in soccer and uh, and you have each of them bring a garbage can to the next practice because you're going to put 10 garbage cans around the field and you're going to have your players invent games with the balls and those garbage cans that they're going to play during during part of your practice. And kids are then going to start developing more accuracy on their kicks. They're going to develop different ways to see things while they're out on the field. They're going to be having fun laughing with each other. They're going to be learning without ever having a drill. So now that's just one little example. You know, we could brainstorm numerous other ways where, where you can change practices so that the kids are learning what you want them to learn, but they're having fun doing it. But you have to get parents on the same page with you when you do that. And it would be nice if you could get the other coaches in your league on the same page. And if we could get all the coaches in the country on the same page, but we don't have that kind of a system. And that's unfortunate. It'd be nice if we could tie it together with certain kinds of coaching education, but we haven't done that very effectively in the United States. Do you you see that happening though? When you think about, right, we've we're, we're in a certain period of history in the U.S. where things are very controlled, commercialized, free market and, and, the flow of money is moving around in all these professionalized kind of ways and in quasi-professional ways. How does the system get reformed yeah. if it's not through legislation, regulation, degree programs, state requirements? Is, is it a is it a pipe dream then? No, I think. Well, you know, we're not going to have a revolution that's going to change something. A revolution. Overnight. <laughs> 
You know, I think Project Play has taken an incremental approach on that. Right, and, right, incremental, yeah. Yeah, and so what they do is they get the stakeholders looking at, at what's going on, and they're saying, wait a minute, we're spending all this money, and we're not getting what we're hoping we get. So if you can, in a community, get people to start realizing that, then they become much more open to change. If you're making sense to them, and and Project Play has has eight different plays that they use as guidelines. The USOC has the American Development Model, which USA Hockey developed because they were losing kids in their developmental programs to the point where their hockey programs in the Hockey Federation were in jeopardy. So what they did, and this took them a long time and they're still working through it, in the early 2000s they started working on developing this American development model which emphasized small-sided play, physical literacy, touches on the puck, you know, an absence of drills, more enjoyment, informal games, play on the ice, going skating sidewards on the ice on four rinks rather than giving eight-year-olds a rink that adults would never play on if it was scaled in the same way for their size. And it's saved on ice time. It's saved on on dropouts. And as their developmental program started using the ADM approach, their development signups went up 20% over what they were before they started dropping. But they're still having problems getting all the coaches on board with this. Because unless we go out and teach an eight-year-old how to hit and suck it up out on the ice, that if we're just letting them have fun, we're wasting time. So basically, it's still tough, but hockey has been successful uh, to a great extent, and now they're being used as a model for all the other 50 federations. But the IOC, I mean, not the IOC, the USOC is having a hard time getting federations to buy into it because we've got such a vested interest in this control and command coach model. So one of the things that we like to do as we're we're wrapping up this session is to have you tell us a little bit about a coach story that is kind of close to your heart. And I think you mentioned once Coach Hall and uh, and something that (laughs) is memorable. Yeah, I I have a unique sport background in that I really never had a serious coach until I was a senior in high school because I had gone to another high school where there were no varsity sports. So, you know, I was part of a group that created our own teams, played in leagues, were self-coached. We played 80 basketball games a year in the CYO and the Chicago Public Leagues and so on. But when I got to high school, it was the first time I had a coach, and, and I happened to do really well and got scholarships to offers to college. But my college coach was Joe B. Hall. And Joe B. Hall later went on to coach at Kentucky and win a national championship. He had been a player at Kentucky, and he used this control command model. And one of my stories about him is during my sophomore year, we went out to California to play Loyola Marymount. We were playing a Division I kind of schedule. And one of our players had an uncle who was working at Disney, Disneyland, and he got us all tickets to Disneyland the day of our game. Oh, yeah. And we went to Disneyland <laughs> for about six hours oh. during that day. And then we went and had our pregame meal. And then we went to the gym and Take a nap. and, and got, <laughs> got ready for the game. And, and we were supposed to be neck and neck with Loyola Marymount. And we were down like 15 points in, in the 
start of the second quarter. And Hall yelled at us and said, you know, we were still at Disneyland and we better yeah, get out of yeah. Disneyland. And we lost big time. We got on an airplane at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, flew from L.A. to Denver, got off the plane at 2, 2.30. He told us to keep on our dress clothes. That was when you had to dress in blazers and dress clothes and so on. We went back to the the gym. He opened up the handball courts and we ran walls yeah. in our tennis shoes and our basketball shoes and our dress clothes until the floors were so slippery with sweat and vomit that we couldn't get from one wall to the next. And then he told us that we should never forget that experience. And I never have. Yes. Uh, sounds like it. And uh, learn your lesson. And and I, I we learned our lesson. <laughs> Keep our heads out of Disneyland and yeah. get them into the game. But but that was part of the way coaches approached things. And and I'm thinking that that's probably not the way to get people to love running. <laughs> no, not to love running. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.